0: There's a lot of back-end things that need to happen, not just improving the service level. There's a lot of admin hassle that providers have to do. It's not just providing better service for providers, HR, and patients, but it's also, can we use data and tech to really make the entire system more efficient and increase healthcare accessibility? Yeah. When I say healthcare accessibility, it's not just population, which is more people having an HMO. It's also service and financial accessibility. Meaning, can we cover things like medicine, which is the number one out-of-pocket cost we discovered, but it's oddly not covered in a basic HMO plan. Or mental health, it's such an important issue, especially after the pandemic, but you also don't get it in your typical HMO plan. And the third pillar is financial coverage. Liability is capped, the coverage is capped for health risk financing in the Philippines. Can you increase that cap so that when you get sick, you are truly covered and not just get a small subsidy out of it? That entails a kind of system overhaul to make the entire system more efficient and increase coverage and accessibility.
1: Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, Sierra founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you a business owner, CFO, or engineering lead who's tired of grappling with outdated finance processes? Are you frustrated at the high costs of card payments or find yourself bogged down by manual financial tasks? It's time for a change. Meet Acme Technology. Our software enables you to connect directly with your bank of choice to automate all of your finance and payments processes. Enjoy real-time reconciliation and direct-to-bank payments and payouts. No lengthy integration. Transform your banking experience into a Stripe-like experience, all with easy integration through streamlined APIs. Learn more at www.acme.com. Tryacme.com. Hey Camille, really excited to have you on the show finally after so many years knowing each other.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jeremy. What an honor.
1: Yeah, well, could you introduce yourself real quick?
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay, so I'm Camille Anne and I guess in light of the theme of this podcast, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Pipe Health. I grew up in the Philippines, born and raised in the Philippines and really spent, in terms of education, took up management engineering with Eteneo, which I believe you'd had a couple of encounters with alumni from, and really spent a bulk of my career in something I'm really passionate about, which is public-private partnerships. So I um, worked across McKinsey government and private equity with Macquarie, really looking into public-private partnership, and yeah, I recently went to grad school, taking up an MBA and MPA in international development with Harvard, and in the middle of the pandemic, changed the course of my career and brought myself into tech and healthcare, and basically started hype.
1: Uh, amazing. I also have to mention that we were good friends since what? I'm meeting you at a conference, I guess, at Harvard. Yes, uh, business school. Um, I think it was a lunch table.
0: That we yes, had with our it was the sandwiches. same night I met my now fiance. <laughs> I know, right? But what I remember night. you and not him. <laughs> 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 okay, Donald, kill me.
1: It's like. He's gonna kill you well uh, Jonathan was the previous guest on the podcast as well Jonathan Ng mm-hmm. so you can check out his podcast here but also I want to say Camille again thank you so much for saving my two cats during the pandemic I'm yeah, gonna say that <laughs> Man, you can lay Jeremy uh,
0: I will tell them one day how you <laughs> left them in New York
1: <laughs> in global pandemic yeah there we go yeah fair, we can start in Singapore we left them in an apartment and then Camille and Jonathan saved them there we go they were good fun <laughs> yeah thank you yeah so Camille could you share a little bit more about what you were like growing up you went to Ateneo, uh, which were you like a partier? Were you a very studious? Were <laughs> you introverted? Were you extroverted?
0: I guess I would classify myself as very extroverted during that time, much more than I am right now. Yeah, I grew up in the Philippines, but came from very similar to kind of the Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia. Came from the third generation, my Chinese family, so a lot of those family emphasis on education is important a lot of the good stuff but also a lot of the conservative stuff on what expectations are for women my great-grandmother still had lotus feet where they would found her feet just to stay at home and i think she was the first one who ever had an education in our family. for our generation we all have education but there is i guess less emphasis in terms of like leadership and career for women which was a little frustration for me growing up, but, um, appreciate also like where they came from but also figured, I guess growing up, it was a figuring out which part of the spectrum I Wow.
1: Had. And what's interesting is that you would eventually intern and work at different places, but really spend that time working in the Philippines government. Could you share more about that?
0: Yeah, that was a bit of a scandal internally. <laughs> but- so I grew up in a private Chinese grade high school in the Philippines and it was only in college where I kind of see a broader view of the Philippines and got to see parts of the Philippines and the paint points and poverty yeah. around in a deeper level. And Athena was a Jesuit school and social justice is a like, big and really bought into the dad wanted to explore that. When I graduated, it was the Aquino administration. And suddenly for the first time in my life, I saw a lot of like smart people from the broad CEOs of company joining at a ninety percent pay cuts they really drive change and at that time the undersecretary for transportation invited me to join and i was like okay i'll do this for two months just to see the pay points when i'm 50 years old i'll go back to government when i've already learned the things in the private sector but after two months i was like hey actually things are like happening fast and the first project they gave me was the New airport second largest airport in the philippines and they wanted to do a public-private partnership out of it we were negotiating with actually like chan yu as part of it and like different foreign players and it was interesting because I remember walking into that office and there were so many feasibility studies of projects that never happened but suddenly this one that I'm handling as a fresh grad seemed to have hope so I was like okay let me try to stay for six more months and then I stayed for another six months. And then I kind of stayed until the end of the administration where we were able to roll out things like the public private partnership, the airport, other PPPs, projects. We were able to create the first ever, I think I remember Al-, Al Jazeera featuring this. We were the first ones who implemented TNVs like Grab and Uber being legal nationwide, having the regulation for that. And it was a like, pretty amazing and one of the highlights of my career, actually. And that was like interesting. For me to prove assumptions wrong, a lot of people are like, okay, you'll join government. You'll just be eaten up by the system. You won't be able to do anything. And actually, I don't regret it any single day that I spent there and I think it really not just helped the people that you were able to help but helped me yeah. as a person grow as well
1: yeah it's interesting because there you were at the Department of Transportation really figuring a lot of this infrastructure which is something that needs to be developed all across Southeast Asia and what's interesting is that you went off to Macquarie and continue working on infrastructure and real estates could you share more yes. about that?
0: I remember entering grad school and I was probably the top percentile of people who were like super super sure on what they wanted to do and ironically did it through what I, wa- I set out to do. And I think so. My family's into real estate, and I really admire my dad for building townships and whatnot, and thought that affordable housing and infrastructure is an interesting space to be at. Learning about public private partnerships. My plan was really to work with local governments to build public private partnerships like bridges, townships, and whatnot from the private sector and i thought infrastructure was really key because it's the multiplier effect and growing up in the philippines i would see people who go to work for 15 minutes and people who would go to work three hours and four hours and not even have proper transportation and i feel like transport and infrastructure was like a big metaphor for inequality in the country and that was like an interesting problem solve. so that's why infrastructure was kind of my life hypothesis at that time
1: yeah and it was interesting because now you're done the public side and now you're also doing the private side. What would you say was like the difference from your perspective?
0: Oh, interesting question. Yeah, I think from the public side with proper political support, there's so much that you can do. Okay. You can hover everyone about, around you and maybe make crazy changes but it takes time like you have to speak to like multiple stakeholders and it's also possible like I've met a lot of people working on like a project for 12 years 10 years and it may not happen but actually if it happens it's monumental but from the private sector it's much faster in terms of what the impact that you can do because you can change and scope out the impact that you want to make but in terms of really moving the needle on a maximum level that would take more time so, I think right now, my view is it's a very personal choice and there is impact to be made on both sides.
1: Yeah. And then after that, you went off to do your Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard MBA combo. What was your thought process there?
0: So, I wanted to do MBA, the record side, versus international development yeah, I wanted to understand the why of like I had took up management engineering, didn't have any clue on economics. And my hypothesis was like infrastructure would move the needle in terms of poverty.. Reduction. I was like, okay, if I'm going to do real estate, it has to be affordable housing. So, if I'm going to do anything in finance, it should be microfinance. kind of like the fringe social enterprise types. I was part of the which was a social enterprise initiative. So that was kind of my thesis, but I wanted to understand, okay, from a macro level, what really moves the needle in terms of poverty reduction? So that's why I wanted to do the FPID program. I didn't know it was like super technical and most people had like master's in I almost died. Going through that, thank you to all my classmates who helped me do all the coding and calculations. But I also wanted to do the MBA program because beyond like the theory, I wanted to know the how. Like how can I take this understanding of what moves in and really take it into my own hands and try to implement something that's meaningful for acceptable problems in developing countries. Specifically, hopefully for the region that I'm from, which is Southeast Asia. And there, I guess that's why I did it. I can share what I learned after.
1: Yeah, <laughs> what I did you learn?
0: You. <laughs> <laughs> A lot. Um, yeah, the MPID program was super interesting. I remember there was this one class. Lant Pritchard, who started the program, came in and he showed this chart. He was like the correlation of. Median income per capita and poverty reduction is 99.3%. And only, I think, 0.3% of poverty reduction was explained by non profit What that means is actually what really moves the needle is when you think of Korea, for example, are all these big businesses like steel, shipbuilding, the industrial policy that really drives the jobs. And immediate income per capita of people but it's funny because in government and all these like non kind of sector, sometimes the private sector is dashed for like oh all these big businesses are evil but actually they're doing like a big role in society moves the needle. But also, I think personal realization was, yes, there's a macro of what moves the needle. And I joined the Rwanda Development Board to go into that industrial policy, like Africa was the big source of the next poverty reduction next to Asia. But my realization was there's a big part of personal journey. I was like, why am I in Africa? There's so much to be done in the Philippines, Southeast Asia. (laughs) Why am I doing industrial policy when I think I have no distinct advantage to be doing this versus another sector that's more meaningful for me right now? And then the MBA program was really helpful in having an ecosystem of other people, building different things like yourself and learning from the different founder stories and the professors and all the cases and realizing that there is not one successful path. It's what resonates with you more and trying that out and Realizing that, hey, it's actually possible was really helpful for me. When we joined the Harvard Business School New Venture Competition, that was such a faraway dream for me. I remember the only Southeast Asia company that won that was, I think, a graph of Anthony Tan, Becky and nothing, which eventually launched it. And we even applied to this too much. (laughs) But then like all your friends are applying anyway, so why not? And then... So it's like those little things that you think, like, why not? Why not? And until today at Hive, there's all these scary things. But then you have this mindset now, like, why not? Then just try it and implement things as fast as you can.
1: So curious because, you know, for myself, I just did half an MBA and they used to call it the West Point of Capitalism. So I was like (laughs) listening to it. I was like... Why do people say it? So I'm kind of curious because the Harvard Kennedy School feels like, I don't know, the West Point of government. I mean, how did you feel? Were there any cultural differences between both sides?
0: Oh, huge. I think like what people value are like very different. What we call the two sides of the bridge. I remember hopping on John's. They go through one class or another and the conversations will be so different. Like what people are optimizing for. But I think it was like super complimentary. Like on the Kennedy side, there's people who come from different parts of the country, especially the program that needed this international development who was like implementing all of these changes in india people were like super super passionate about education in brazil or in middle eastern conflict for me coming from the philippines and most of my friends here, like from the philippines and coming from a family business i guess community like hbs was more familiar in terms of making an impact is like giving jobs to people and creating good businesses and when there's surplus you give back government was not even my parents were against me going to government like my dad is super passionate about helping people in terms of solving poverty as well but the theory of change is so different but then like you go to the other side of the river and they think okay what are the policies we can do what's the economic model there any change thing just last week friend of mine who had background in like Peru, uh, French friend. They're like, Hey, this girl in the Philippines is working on a visual policy to meet me up with the Senator here. And they get super excited about changing things from a more macro uh, perspective. And like, it's interesting seeing both sides because almost like the schools are a representation of like society as a whole as well and how people think about their
1: You mentioned earlier that it was like controversial to work in government, to study government studies. Could you share a little bit more about why?
0: Controversial for my family.
1: Yeah, I guess that's how you defined it, I guess.
0: Yeah. I guess it was more not useful. And I think they grew up in a different generation where there's a lot of like being jaded and on what the government can do. And they also have heard of a lot of stories of joining government and you try to do good, but it actually bites you back. Because in government, there's little incentive to do things different. And that's what you actually need. And when you do things different, there's a risk that other stakeholders find something that puts you down. So it was more out of luck <laughs> that my family was against. Me, but I think in the end, it's a part of
1: You just love doing it. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you took this time and now you are back, at least from my perspective, giving back again through an entrepreneurial route. You've decided to build and found Hype Health. Could you share more about that?
0: Yeah, I guess first what Hype Health is. So we're the first full-stack health insurance company that provides easier to use, higher value, comprehensive health plans, specificities for small medium enterprises. And really what motivated me and my co-founders starting is is on a personal level, growing up, I would have a lot of friends who would have someone in the family has a health shock and they wipe off their savings, wipe off their employer-sponsored plans and really struggle to pay for their needs. And I always just thought that's the way things should be. But then studying in Boston, healthcare capital, and realizing that there's a lot of things that can be done in terms of health financing to improve health protection was really interesting, especially at the height of the pandemic. Me and Zhao and my co-founder created this, made this entire question into our thesis at Harvard, and we tried to answer why and how can we increase health protection. What we discovered is more than 1.5 million Filipinos go into poverty every year because of health shocks and beyond the social health insurance, only less than 10% of the population have what they call HMOs, mostly large corporations. And the reason is a lot of these HMOs are built on legacy manual systems, So it's very expensive for them to reach all these small, medium enterprises. And what that means for SMEs is they get poor service and they get really expensive plans just because their number of employees are really small. So we thought, hey, that's where the pain is most felt. And when we started to think about it, it was in the middle of COVID, where there was increased digitization and there was an increase in demand and greater quality care so friends of mine who own businesses that would never provide a health plan before would be like oh I would lose an employee because they don't have a health or my health plan is actually not up to their standards so then because of this greater awareness and digitalization and greater demand for quality Healthcare. We saw an opportunity to build a capital market driven solution, i.e., a startup to try to solve this macro problem that we looked at from a Kennedy School point of view and now are trying to implement from a more business perspective.
1: Yeah, you're serving thousands of doctors across the country. I think it's interesting because it's something that people really struggle with, obviously. What do you think are some myths and misconceptions about healthcare in the Philippines?
0: This is a misconception, I guess, of me also <laughs> growing up. Yeah. I always thought I had no concept of care coordination or primary care. In the Philippines, when someone has seven different kinds of symptoms, they go with to- Seven different doctors and my mom literally did this. She had a knee pain. She went to an oncologist because she had cancer. She went to a, she thought she had cancer. She went to a cardiologist. She went to our pediatrician. She went to our generalist doctor. She went to like five or six doctors. And we see this in our previous patients before we instituted our new care model as well. They would go to all these doctors and these doctors don't have their full medical records. So what happens is not only do they spend a lot of money either out of pocket or their health plan utilization, they also don't get the right standard of care because their doctors don't see their full medical history. So they get inaccurately misdiagnosed and overall bad health outcomes. So what we're trying to do at Hive and what we've built is beyond just making processes more efficient, like availing care instead of lining up in hospital for four hours it's much easier we built an integrated vertically integrated telehealth function with an emr that we've built in-house as well so that our own doctors are able to see all your medical records from your annual physical exam to all your consults so then they get a bigger broader view of your medical history and we kind of serve as a primary care function so then your high doctor routes you to the right care and you're able to more efficiently use your health plan, more efficiently use your time, get a better standard of care for yourself and your loved ones. Yeah.
1: What's the interesting aspect is you're building a HMO. So most people don't know what a HMO is. It's something that I learned because I've always had a long interest in healthcare. But could you explain what a HMO means? But more specifically, we've always thought of HMOs in the context of the US, right? So what does, what does that mean in the context of the Philippines?
0: Okay. Let me in the quantity of Philippines because it's probably different elsewhere. So HMO and I guess healthcare, health financing in the Philippines is we do have social health insurance. It's provided by PhilHealth, but it only covers for inpatient care and the liability is capped. So let's say when you need cancer treatment, you only get say eight percent of the cost of the care that of the actual treatment that you need. And everything about that is out of pocket, which is why supplemental health plans are important, at least for the time being. I'm not sure when PhilHealth will eventually be able to cover for everyone's needs I and mean, that's the ideal hope. So supplemental health plans are important, but as mentioned, it's only available to less than 10% of the population. And what HMO means in the Philippines is before this whole industry was started by the company that we just recently acquired, health Supplemental health plans were reimbursement-based. So you go to the hospital, you need a surgery, you pay it first, and then you go back to your employers, they pay you back. But that's a difficult model for the Philippines because a lot of people don't have like $200, $300 to just pay up front. For some people, that's their entire salary for the entire month. So then a cashless system is important, which is what the HMO industry tried to do. So for us, we have 60,000 doctors across the location, 1700 in hospitals, you can just go to those hospitals when you need it, and you don't have to pay a single cent, and you get the care. That
1: you Amazing. And what's interesting is how do you go about building HMO, right? Because you know, it's such an esoteric <laughs> thing. Is it like in my head it's like go to every doctor, get them to agree, or is it like go to the employers, you sign them up, or? What is the, how did you go about doing that?
0: It's a two-sided marketplace. So you, on the one hand, you have all your clients. But on the other hand, you have all these valuable doctors and providers that you need to convince to join you in the system. And if you look at the HMOs in the country, they weren't built over time. So uh, HAPI, which is an amazing company that we, are, uh, that we acquired, built it across four decades. And it took a lot of time for them to build that. So initially, we partnered with them to really test out the tech platform that we've done. But what we realized is, yes, we're getting all these customers and organic referrals. And they're really happy with the way that we change care available. But to really move, enable in terms of health outcomes, incentives of doctors and providers to give the best care possible. We need to be able to control the quality levers and have a direct relationship with all these providers. And that's why we decided to acquire the So now we are able to combine the tech and data of Hive and the 37 years of institutional knowledge data provider network that HPVI has to really elevate the patient experience even further from where we are today.
1: And on that note, as you think about this, what is the growth approach? Is it like 2 the marketplace, get more customers on one side, get more providers on the other side, and just keep going? Is that the approach?
0: Yes, in in a sense. But there's a lot of like back-end things that need to happen. So there's not just improving the service level, both for providers. There's a lot of like admin hassle that providers have to deal with. Today. It's not just providing better service for providers and HR and patients, but it's also can we use data and tech to really make the entire system more efficient and really increase healthcare accessibility? And when I say healthcare accessibility, it's not just population, which is more people having an HMO, it's also service and financial accessibility. Meaning, can we service? Can we cover things like medicine, which is the number one out-of-pocket cost? We discovered through our thesis, but it's oddly not covered in a basic HMO plan that you get. Or mental health, it's such an important issue, especially after the pandemic, but you also don't get it in your typical HMO plan. And the third pillar is financial coverage. So, liability is capped, the coverage is capped for health risk financing in the Philippines. Can you increase that cap so that when you get sick, you are truly covered and not just get a small subsidy out of it? And that entails a kind of system overhaul to make the entire system more efficient
1: and increase coverage and accessibility for Yeah. On that note, could you share about time that you personally have been brave?
0: I guess entering healthcare was a scary feat altogether. As I mentioned earlier, infrastructure was my comfort zone and friend real estate was my comfort zone and that was my hypothesis. And I remember going to grad school and I told myself, I'll do a 70-30 approach. Like 70% is I'll go to conferences, attend classes, meet people in the space that my hypothesis is at, but I'll. Do the 30% just to see what's out there. And I remember healthcare was one of those random stuff that I wanted to have. Like a random HBS healthcare conference that I know nothing about. And just like, understanding how painful the process is and how big of an opportunity there is as well. And realizing that we may be the right people to do it. We, meaning my co-founder, had a background in fintech and data science. I had a background in public-private partnerships and private equity insurance fund and understanding of the market. Having that realization was scary because, on the one hand, it was like, hey, we can do something about it. But on the other hand, you know, we're outsiders in this industry. Can we really do something about it? But it was helpful to have a large community of people doing crazy things, both in the business side, like running all these crazy startups like yourself, and on the government policy side of people trying to move the needle and practical people from the industry. So that was really helpful.
1: Yeah. How did you bring us up, up to speed and get comfortable with healthcare as a domain?
0: It wasn't overnight. I think people who were close to healthcare, like John, my fiance was a doctor before and his mental healthcare it was really helpful. So I think having a deeper understanding of the problem through different people, our thesis and speaking to uh, our various stakeholders was a good start. The second the pillar that really helped us was being a school was helpful mm. because it was a low risk way to iterate on our ideas, join all these competitions. But the real conviction that really made us dive was all the customer feedback that people value this thing. We're not just like providing a vitamin, we're providing like a painkiller. So something that people have been clamoring for a long time and we haven't launched until this week actually. We never went public but most of our um, accounts have, have been from organic referrals. So we really love our product and would share it with other people and that's really encouraging and what keeps us going. So I think two interesting stories is one, yeah, recently this patient of ours shared that she was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease and I remember her quote, she was like, I needed to go through so many doctors, so many hospitals and it impacted my overall health but because of how I've structured their portal and dashboard, I realized that I can only, feel, I can spend just one hour doing all this versus spending 10 hours in the hospital and that's. was a and another story is someone who just reached out and shared that our mental health coverage really changed his life. So he wasn't sure if he had ADHD and through our teleconsult, he was able to get diagnosed that he actually had ADHD and was easily able to follow up, rechecking checking if the med test worked and it did. And yeah, he was sharing how it really changed the course of his life, being able to easily access this. Cause you can try to want to reach out to a doctor, but if it's such a hassle to do, a lot of people just end up not doing it and you spend 10 years of your life not being diagnosed and not you know, living a life that's less optimal.
1: On that note, thank you so much for sharing. I would love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for sharing about what you were like as a student, extroverted, also with a heart for public service. It was really fascinating to hear your decision that was controversial at that point of time to work in a government, in a department of transportation. I also get a good sense of what Public and private partnerships are, especially in the context of infrastructure and real assets. So really interesting to see that journey. Uh, secondly, thank you so much for hearing about what inspired you to work on Hive Health, about your desire to improve health infrastructure and availability and access for so many uh, Filipinos. Uh, so really interesting to hear not just about how you Saw the problem but also how you started to grow both sides of the market also about your acquisition of the health plan philippines as well as part of your expansion so really fascinating there lastly thank you so much for sharing about your own uh, personal journey right i really enjoyed hearing about some of the tough moments in terms of learning about healthcare also having the opportunity to learn from both the harvard BA program as well as the harvard kennedy school program and be surrounded by such great folks about thinking about the future and changing lives on that note thank you so much Camille for sharing thanks so much Jeremy for having me. thank you for listening to brave if you enjoyed this episode please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues we would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content resources and community stay well and stay brave